in 1 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 31. I want to read all the text at large. So the whole chapter is only 13 verses. And uh, that'll, that'll give us a head start into the message tonight. So follow along on the screen or in your Bible. 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Moshua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, Draw thy sword, thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled <clears throat> that Saul forsook, I'm sorry, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, sent it into the land of the Philistines round about, to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. <clears throat> they took their bones and buried them under the tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. In April of 2018, a Southwest Airlines passenger was killed on a flight when one of the engines on the aircraft exploded in midair. I don't know if you remember this happening, but the plane took off from New York. It was scheduled to land in Dallas. About 20 minutes into the flight, the engine exploded and the shrapnel from the explosion shattered the window and the passenger, a woman that was sitting next to that window, got partially sucked out of the plane. They were able to pull her back into the plane where they, they tried to save her life, <clears throat> but were unable to do so. One of the passengers on that plane took a picture during the whole ordeal. And the, the picture, as you can see, was of, of all the passengers on the flight who were wearing their yellow oxygen mask. Here's what's interesting. As you can see, all the passengers who were pictured wearing the mask are wearing them improperly. Not too unfamiliar to what we see at Walmart. They, they were wearing the mask only over their mouth but not their nose. Now, it's one thing to do that when you're working at Walmart stocking toys. It's a whole other thing when you're up thousands of feet in the air. Because if you don't have those oxygen masks on correctly, you can die if the pressure in the cabin increases to a certain point. One veteran flight attendant who wasn't on that flight but later saw the picture made this comment. Those passengers might as well have been wearing their oxygen mask on top of their heads, she said. This is a perfect illustration of why people need to pay attention during the safety instructions. This is a very common problem. <laughs> when the flight attendant is going through the safety instructions, including the proper use of the oxygen mask, she said people are not usually listening or paying any attention. Guilty as charged. And you are too. 
and you're less, unless you're weird and you like that kind of stuff, this particular flight attendant, uh, she said, would often test her passengers to see if they were paying attention. She, she would use a rubber chicken in place of the oxygen mask. So she would let the rubber chicken, when they were demonstrating it, unfurl from where the oxygen masks typically were released. And then she would put the rubber chicken over her nose and mouth, waiting for someone to giggle or laugh or say something. She said most of the time, not a single passenger noticed. Because nobody was paying attention. I'm telling you, I I fly several times in a year and I never pay attention. The reason these passengers had their oxygen mask on wrong, and probably the reason why I would have had my oxygen mask on wrong was because they failed to pay attention when it mattered the most. It didn't feel like it mattered. And it doesn't feel like it matters. But at some point it will. Well, King Saul did the same thing. Obviously, he didn't ignore a flight attendant. Airplanes didn't exist, but he did ignore somebody more important than a flight attendant. And he ignored something more valuable than airplane safety procedures. He ignored God and his word. And it didn't start that way for Saul. At one point in Saul's kingship, the Bible says he was small in his own eyes. He was humble. He was teachable. He was patient. He was a pretty good listener. Looked up to Samuel. But at some point along the way, King Saul stopped paying attention. In fact, 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14 tells us that his disregard for God's word is why he died in the first place. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. And also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it and inquire not of the Lord. Therefore, he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. This disregard of God's word in Saul's life started back in chapter 13 when Saul refused to wait on Samuel to make a sacrifice and he took matters into his own hands. In fact, that was the title of that message, taking matters into our own hands. That's something that was clearly forbidden in scripture for even a king to do. And Saul did it anyway. It continued in chapter 15 when God told Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites and leave nothing alive. Instead of obeying completely, Saul disregarded God's word and spared the king's name was Agag and the best of the livestock and made excuses after he did it. The most recent time we just read in 1 Chronicles of disregard to God's word was back in chapter 28. When Saul was scared of the Philistines, God was done listening to Saul. And so in desperation, he sought the counsel of a witch, something clearly forbidden in the Torah, which Saul knew well. It's not that Saul was ignorant of God's word. It's that Saul ignored God's word. It's not that God's word was unavailable to Saul. God's word was unappealing to Saul. It's not as though Saul only had one chance to obey God's word. He had many chances, but he made the choice to not pay attention when it mattered the most. And now the narrative of 1 Samuel closes by recording the moment when his disregard of God's word finally catches up with him. His sin finally finds him out in a statement. Here's really what this passage teaches us tonight. When you choose to sin, You choose to suffer. Did you hear me? 
When we disregard God's word for our lives, we invite God's judgment into our lives. Galatians 6 says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Paul was inspired of the Holy Spirit to start that verse with that phrase, be not deceived. Why? Because what he's about to say, we so easily deceive ourselves about. We deceive ourselves into thinking we can sin, not be repentant of our sin, and get away with it. I would say, based on that verse, we are absolutely foolish to think that we can sin without repentance and get away with it. As foolish as Adam and Eve were when they sinned in the garden. And then they went and hid, thinking they could get away with it. As foolish as the men and and women who mocked Noah as he was building the ark. As foolish as Jacob was when he persistently deceived to get his way. As foolish as Pharaoh was when he held God's people captive against God's word. As foolish as Nadab and and, and Abihu were who offered strange fire in the temple and thought they could get away with it. As foolish as the Israelites who consistently murmured and complained against their God-given spiritual leaders. As foolish as Samson who rebelled against his parents and pursued the lust of his flesh. As foolish as Elimelech, who who sojourned to Moab, took his family with him and never repented. And never got back to Bethlehem, Judah. As foolish as Jonah, who presumptuously rebelled against the call of God in his life to go to Nineveh. As foolish as Hophni and Phinehas at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, who desecrated the temple. And as foolish as their passive father Eli was in addressing it. As foolish as the prodigal son in Luke 15 who wasted his substance with riotous living. As foolish as the religious leaders are who put Jesus on a cross. All these characters I mentioned at some point believed that they could live in unrepented sin and get away with it. But God will not be mocked. He will not turn a blind eye towards our sin All the unrepentant sin of every character I just mentioned eventually found them out. The time we have remaining tonight, I want to use Saul's death as kind of a cautionary tale to teach us what happens when we disregard God's word. I want this text to show us what it looks like when our sin finally finds us out. First, when your sin finds you out, it will destroy your life. It'll destroy you. The verbs in our narrative that we read really tell the story, I think, of sin's ability to destroy. The word flee is used three times. The word fall or fallen is used four times. The word strike down is used two times. The word strip is used two times. The the words wounded or pierced through, cut off, those are used once. And it all climaxes to the word die, which is used four times in the narrative that we read. In other words, sin will cause you to flee. It'll cause you to fall. It'll strike you down. It'll strip you to nothing. It'll wound you. It'll pierce you. It'll cut you off. And listen, church, it eventually will kill you. Why? Because sin grows. The longer we live in sin without repenting of it, the deadlier it gets in our life. Sin isn't finished until it is confessed, repented of, and forsaken. 
James tells us this, that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Notice that phrase, when it is finished, meaning sin has a course. Sin runs a race. It has a starting line and it has a finish line. It performs its work in our lives until it is finished. And the danger of letting sin work in our lives until it is finished is that the finish line for sin is death. Meaning when sin is finished, we are finished. Or at least something we love is finished. Saul let his sin go go on too long in his life. He let his sin get to the finish line. And when it did, it finished him. Here's what this teaches us. If we want to avoid what Saul experienced, if we want to avoid being finished and, and destroyed by sin, we must deal with sin early. You hear me? Sin, deal with it early. Deal with it often. Deal with sin while it's small. If sin runs a course, then it's better to deal with sin at the starting line than to deal with sin at the finishing line. How do we do that? In just one practical way, we expose ourselves to God's word every single day. Every day. We expose ourselves to God's word on Sunday mornings as well. And Sunday nights. And Wednesday nights. Why? Because God's word is a mirror. See, most of us look into a mirror every day of our lives. Why? So we can stay on top of what we look like. It's by looking in a mirror that I realize I need to shave. I look into a mirror that I realize I need to do my hair. It's messed up. It's by looking and realize I'm gaining too much weight. Can I get a witness? Without a mirror, a lot of things would go unaddressed in my life for too long. And without the mirror of God's word, you will not be able to see the sin in your life for what it is. You won't be able to see your sin when it's small. You won't be able to see your sin on a regular basis. The devil's too crafty to make your sin obvious. He will cause your sin to feel like it's okay. He will cause you to minimize your sin and hide your sin and deny your sin and justify your sin. Therefore, church, you need God's word that will shine a light on your sin. It will illuminate your sin, it will magnify your sin, it will expose your sin, and ultimately, the God, God's word will eradicate your sin. So Christian, read your Bible every day. Every day, read your Bible. Find a Bible reading plan. Get a devotional book if you've never gotten in the word before and you just need to get something to get you in the habit and get a Kickstarter, get a devotional book. Set aside the time to nourish yourself with God's word. Make it as much of a priority as you do your meal during a day. It it is something you can't afford to miss. Every day that you skip Looking at yourself in the mirror of God's word, every day you skip that is a day your sin has an opportunity to grow a little bit bigger. Come to church every service you can. Why? Because you need every service. That's not a legalistic statement. Did you hear me? That's not that's not a legalistic statement. God doesn't love you more because you came to Wednesday nights. But the more you go, the more you grow. The more you come to God's house, the better, the better chances you're giving yourself 
to grow into the likeness and image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is really your purpose on this earth. I don't apologize for still having a Sunday night service and a Wednesday night service for that very reason. And I don't even apologize for putting it on the wall and saying you need to grow through coming to the evening services. I'm telling you, the moment you, you, you start thinking, you know what, I, I, I just, I'm not going to go to, never choose to just not come to church. Don't choose that. That can't be a good choice. Just never choose that. I understand there's sometimes you just can't come. Like we all get that. Again, I'm not being crazy on that kind of stuff. But don't just stay at home and say, you know what, I'm just not going today. That is the poorest choice you can make for your spiritual life. You need to be around God's people. And you need to be exposed to God's word. Now, I know you read it maybe that day. But wouldn't you agree there's something different about getting with God's people, letting the preacher stand up and preach God's word to you? It's, it's God's plan for spiritual growth. Hey, plug into a connection group. Because in those connection groups, we take God's word that we heard the previous Sunday morning and we dive into it and we discuss it and we apply it to our lives. It's, it's one more chance for you through the testimony of somebody else in your class or through a verse that is read or through the instruction of your, your connection group leader. It's yet another opportunity for you to see your sin while it's small. One old preacher said, you better be killing sin or else sin will be killing you. The best way to kill it's through the word. Best way to do that. When your sin finds you out, it'll destroy you. So be regularly destroying it. Secondly, when your sin finds you out, it will devastate those around you. <coughs> I want you to consider several different ways that Saul's sin devastated. Those around devastated probably isn't even a strong enough word. When Saul was wounded by an arrow, he asked his armor bearer to kill him. Well, because his armor bearer didn't want to be accused of killing the king, he said no. At that point, Saul killed himself, but the armor bearer was still in a tough spot, was he not? He let the king die. He had one job, shield the king, keep the king safe, but he failed. And, and it, what it did is it brought him to a point where he felt the only way out was suicide for himself. You know one way that our sin devastates those around us? It puts them in really tough situations. It ties their hands sometimes. It, 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 it takes the people we love and it kind of puts them in a corner as a result of our sinful and selfish and carnal and irresponsible decisions. When husbands and fathers go out and spend their money impulsively or quit their job prematurely or uproot their family suddenly. Listen, men, don't think that that has no effect on your kids or your wife. They'll act as supportive as they possibly can. But as a husband continues to seek career success and material possessions and the almighty daughter, guess what he does? He leaves those who love him the most in ruin. I've seen and known Christian employers who have an employee that is either persistently slothful or persistently late or persistently uh, dishonest. Obviously, because they, they care about this employee, they grieve over having to fire them or let them go. But because of, of the persistent actions of their employee, this Christian employer now finds himself or herself in a difficult situation. Can I say something to all in Christian employees sitting before me tonight? Don't put your employer in that kind of situation. 
because of our lack of integrity at work. Don't, don't, don't put them in a tight spot. I could go on, but you get the point. Our sin will devastate those around us and that it doesn't just hurt them, but it puts them in really tough spots. Another way that Saul's sin devastated those around him was that it, it caused those around him to experience the same amount of loss that he did. Verse 6 says that Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men that same day together. You know what I've learned? I think you'd agree. Sin makes us stupid. Doesn't it? I mean, you study the part of our brain that is actually working when we sin and you'll, you'll actually realize that is science. <laughs> we are stupid when we sin. We stop using the part of our brain that, that puts choices and consequences together. We stop making sense when we are in a pattern of sinful behavior. Because oftentimes it's not that the sinner denies that he'll lose because of his sin. He knows that. But the sinner often denies that those around him will lose. Tell him hi for me. The sinner, watch it, is often deceived into thinking the consequences of a sin are isolated to himself. Wouldn't you agree that's illogical? Everything we do, good or bad, affects somebody outside of ourselves. Here's the truth. When you sin, you lose, and so does somebody else. And oftentimes, in the same ways that you lose. Oftentimes, their consequence is just as severe as yours. When a husband spends all the money impulsively, he's not the only one that loses money. The rest of the family no longer has financial stability. Now he has to work more jobs, and now the kids get less of dad at home. Everybody loses. When someone gets bitter, can't forgive, they're not the only one that loses that relationship. Oftentimes I've found the bitter one prevents those around them from having that relationship anymore or makes them feel guilty for doing so. When parents get backslidden and stop putting God first in their lives, rarely do their kids still just come to church on their own. As the parents are choosing to give up opportunities for spiritual growth through faithful church attendance in their lives, they're also choosing to forfeit spiritual growth in the lives of their kids as well. Everybody loses. Sin devastates those around you in that it puts them in difficult situations. It causes them to lose as, as much as you lose oftentimes. And then notice this. Sin causes those around you to grieve. Sometimes the most devastating consequence of our sin is that it breaks the heart of those that love us. And we don't consider that when we sin. See, back in chapter 15, when Saul sinned, he didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites. The text says that it grieved the heart of Samuel. Samuel would have been equivalent, I guess, to his pastor, his spiritual mentor. The one that was investing in his life. And when God announced to Samuel that Saul would no longer be king, you can read the end of chapter 15. Samuel went into mourning. And if you study the kind of mourning that he went into, it was the same type of mourning that, that, that they would participate in for someone who actually died. Saul's sin broke his heart. In my Bible, I look over one page to 2 Samuel 1, which will start at some point this spring. When David found out about the death of Saul and Jonathan, you can look on there, he lamented. It broke his heart. He didn't throw a party. 
See, don't forget that David was Saul's son-in-law. His servant, his co-warrior in battle, his comforter. By playing the heart. Remember all those moments and memories they made together? Don't forget that Jonathan was David's most trusted companion. His best friend. It, it broke his heart to hear about their death. <coughs> As a pastor, I, I can identify with this. I'm learning that one of the hardest things about being a pastor is that I get a front row seat to watch sin destroy people's lives. I'm often on the front line with them trying to convince them that God's way is best, but I've had to watch at times as they kept disregarding God's word for their marriage, disregarding God's word for their addiction, disregarding God's word for how to parent their kids, how to deal with their bitterness, how to handle an offense, how to manage their finances. I've had to watch as they, like Saul, kept telling God no and eventually let sin finish its work in them. I don't sleep good when that kind of thing happens. It grieves me. I've watched his parents grieve the sin of their children and grandchildren. I've watched a wife grieve the sin of her husband. I've watched a husband grieve the sin of his wife. I've watched as one church member grieves when another church member is destroyed by sin and no longer comes. I just want to make it so clear tonight. Sin devastates those around you. So please, please think about others before you choose to live in sin. Think about others. When your sin finds you out, it'll destroy your life. It'll devastate those around you. Let me give you one more thing. We'll go home. When your sin finds you out, it will diminish God's glory. Look at verses 8 and 10. I want to read them again. 8 through 10. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa and they cut off his head, stripped off his armor and sent to the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. They put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beshon. Here's what happened, at least for the moment. The false gods, the idols, the pagan temples are getting all the glory. See, to them, Saul's head belonged to Yahweh. They knew enough to know that the children of Israel belonged to God. But now it belongs to them. Therefore, Yahweh, to them, has been defeated. To them, Yahweh is a loser. It's not that they were just putting Saul's head somewhere to say, we killed the king. It was more than bragging rights. We killed the king's God. Through, through, through King Saul's sin, watch here, the glory of Yahweh was greatly diminished. Hear me, worse than Israel's defeat in this text is Yahweh's disgrace. And worse than any other consequence your sin brings is the consequence of diminishing God's glory to a lost and dying world. When you sin, you don't just make yourself look bad. You don't just embarrass your family. You don't just grieve your pastor. You make God look small and unappealing to the lost sinner that might have just been looking for a reason to not believe in him. This is the opposite of the God-given purpose of a disciple, is it not? Jesus told us in the great sermon on the mount that we are the light of the world. 
Meaning we are to shine. Why? So the world can see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Those are Jesus' words. We do right. We live holy lives. We, we are ethical at work so that others will see our God through us. We fight sin. We confess sin. We repent of sin. We forsake sin so that through our attitudes and through our actions and our responses and our words and our habits, God will get all the glory. And the people around us will be drawn to him. This world doesn't need any more reason to reject our God. Yet so many professing Christians, it seems, are giving the world reasons every day. When Christians are going to the same wicked places, doing the same wicked things with the same wicked people, having the same wicked attitudes, enslaved by the same wicked addictions, posting the same wicked comments on social media, they are giving the world a reason to say, God makes no difference. God makes no sense. God is overrated. If you act like that, I don't want anything to do with the God that you serve. That won't get them out of hell. That excuse won't work at the judgment seat of Christ or at the white throne judgment. But it might contribute to them being at the great white throne judgment. See, this is why I'll preach against sin and address sin in our church. Hopefully not hatefully. But with a sense of righteous indignation because Jesus said that, that we the church are, are like a city lit up and set on the top of a hill. And he says this, we cannot be hidden. Why? Because the gospel preaching, Jesus exalting church like Fellowship Baptist Church carries the only hope this world can have. We carry the gospel. We cannot let sin hide our light. We cannot let anything or anybody steal God's glory from this place. The world needs us to corporately shine bright so that they can see our Father's glory through our church. May it never be said about you or anyone in our church that if they go there, I'm not going there. May we never post anything, say anything, do anything that would cause a lost sinner to say, you won't catch me dead at Fellowship Baptist. And I'm not talking about doing the right thing because sometimes doing the right thing with the right spirit at the right time can still repel people. I get that. But I have a feeling there are times when we we repel people for doing the wrong thing or for doing the right thing in the wrong way. And when you do the right thing in the wrong way, you're still wrong. Be sure your sin will find you out. And when it does, it'll destroy you. It'll devastate those around you. And it'll diminish God's glory. So what's the answer as we close? Especially if, if, if somebody in here might find themselves living in a pattern of unrepented sin right now. Well, here's the answer found in Proverbs 28. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy.
That's the answer. First, you refuse to cover, conceal, or hide your sin. Why? Because sin grows in the dark. But sin dies when it's brought in the light. Uncover it. And until you do, don't expect for God to prosper you. How do we uncover our sin? You confess it and you forsake it. Are you hearing me? This is the answer. You you admit its existence in your life. Even if it's a blind spot. Even if you've been in denial for a long time when your spouse or or your parents or or, or your boss or your pastor has been telling you and pointing this out in your life. And you even if, if you've been in denial for so long, humble yourself and admit its existence in your life. And then apologize to the Lord for allowing it in your life. And then plead for his help in getting it out of your life. And here's the great promise. When you do, you will find mercy. That's the answer. God, God, God will not only show you mercy in forgiving your sin as you confess your sin, but he will show you mercy in helping you to forsake your sin. He will give you what you need to escape its temptation. That's mercy. And oftentimes in his mercy, here's what I found in my life, at least we can never guarantee this. But because he is such a merciful God, slow to anger, as we confess and forsake our sin, he oftentimes in his goodness lessens the severity of the consequences associated with our sin. How many would agree with that? The wages of sin is what? Death. The very first time I turned my back on Jesus who died on the cross for me, God should have fried me. That's what I deserve. But in his mercy, he lessens the consequence. And it's even more practical than that. There, there are times, there are times when, whenever I did something or said something, I should have lost a job. But God in his mercy saw fit to lessen the severity of the consequence. God doesn't guarantee to do that. But sometimes in his goodness, he does. Don't expect that. That's pride and entitlement. But sometimes in God's good mercy, he does that. Would you hear me? 1 Samuel 31 didn't have to happen. It didn't. Saul had a lot of chances to regard God's word in his life. Yes, we know that Saul wasn't God's choice for the king and that God was going to set up somebody by the name of David. But listen, it didn't have to happen this way. God God gave Saul chances to listen. God empowered Saul. You could see in the earlier parts of first in his kingship, he empowered Saul. The spirit came upon him to do some pretty amazing things. That means God was making lemonade out of lemons. Like it didn't have to end this way. But sin always ends in death if it's not confessed and forsaken. So take heed tonight. There's a cautionary tale for us. None of us, none of us are to a point in our spiritual life where we rise above this tendency. Truth is you sin today. And I've sinned today and will sin tomorrow. But the, 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 the key is living in a rhythm of repentance every day. Rhythm of repentance so that God can keep using us and that sin stays small in our life. You agree with God's word? Say amen. amen. Stand to your feet. Maybe you need